In this episode of the Church Security Roll Call, we're going to be discussing the Wedgwood Baptist Church shooting in Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Chris with Sheepdog Church Security, and this is your Church Security Roll Call. Today we're going to be discussing the article, 1999 Wedgwood Baptist Church Shooting, Fort Worth, Texas. If you'd like to read that article, go to our website, sheepdogchurchsecurity.net, and look under the News tab. So we're starting something new here, and what it's what we're going to be doing at first once a month is we're going to start profiling high-profile shootings at churches around the country. Now, the goal here primarily is to review what occurred and then try to draw from it some lessons learned, some things that we can do now in our own churches to either stop this type of thing from happening at our church or by at least mitigating the damage, the casualties um, by, you know, by for our own safety, right? For our own churches. So a couple disclaimers here is first, we will never name the name of the killer. And the reason we do that is because we don't want to give that person any fame. And more importantly, we don't want to inspire anybody else to commit this kind of crime in the hopes of getting their name out there, to be recognized, to be remembered, because people are wired that way. I think about how suicide has changed over the years, and part of these activities are all about going out in a blaze of glory and leaving a name for so people will at least remember you for a short time after you've killed yourself. Also, too, it's about sharing the pain. It's about, you know, all these other families are now mourning because of this person's problem. The other thing is this, is this is not about saying anything bad about the victims. What The way I look at it is this, is we actually honor the victims by learning from what they went through. And so if I ever say anything about they would have, should have, could have done this, it's not about necessarily Monday morning quarterbacking them and saying they're dumb and they made mistakes. It's not about that. It's about you and I learning from the situation. So let's get into this one. So this was a while ago. And so this is 1999. So I guess, um, you know, that's 20, 21 years away. Um, so it's been a while. So to give you kind of a little background, what was happening here is the high school students were planning on attending a See You at the Pole event. So I don't even know if they do those anymore, but basically the idea is that Christian students get together, they meet at the school, and they go, you know, at the flagpole, and they pray for their, you know, pray for their school, they pray for their fellow students, you know, they pray for whatever, the country, whatnot. And so this was supposed to occur on September 16th, and it was gonna, it was a Thursday. So what they decided to do is that they were going to have a Wednesday night kind of rally. They were going to get all the students together, the pastors, you know, youth pastors, that kind of deal. They brought in a band, they had refreshments, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was all meant to kind of motivate and, you know, get the kids excited about the next day. Well, um, what occurred was this is, so that started about 6 p.m. in the evening. The shooting occurred almost an hour later. And what happened is a middle-aged man dressed in a t-shirt, uh, jeans, uh, a black windbreaker, came into the church, into the lobby. 
uh, and he had a cigarette in his mouth, two pistols, some extra ammunition, and a pipe bomb. And we'll get to those in a minute. Well, as he walked into the lobby, there was just a few people in the lobby. They had the associate pastor in the lobby. They had one of the uh, Christian choir leader, whatever group guy. He was sitting on a couch, and there was one other adult that was standing at a table that they're selling CDs of this Christian, um, you know, rock band. And so the associate pastor approached him and asked him to put out the cigarette. And he pulled out a gun and shot the associate pastor. He then shot the person sitting on the couch, the choir director, and he shot the other adult that was standing behind the, you know, the CD table. He then went into the sanctuary, and he actually pounded on the door. So he's not outside. He enters in, but he's you know, making a racket by hitting the door really hard. And I want to make sure that I get these words right here is he said, um, uh, let's see, I can't believe you believe all this junk. And pointing at his handgun, he said, this is real. And that's when he started shooting with one of the handguns. And he basically shot a couple of people. He took a pipe bomb. He threw it down an aisle. It exploded. Uh, Nobody got hurt from the pipe bomb, thank God. And then he started shooting with his other guns. He actually took the time several times to reload and and just keep shooting at people. Um, there are, you know, some reports that somebody had actually said to him, you know, hey, you don't need to be doing this. And they were trying to tell him about Jesus. Well, that only made him angrier. And so he's starting to yell and cuss and, you know, really getting, you know, just crazy and continuing to shoot people. And then finally, after 10 minutes, think about this, 10 minutes, he finally sits back in a, in a pew and towards the back, and he shoots himself. And so once all this is done, this whole event that lasted about 10 minutes, he had six people died, plus him, so you could say seven. And then you had another, you had another what would be the math here, so that's seven, another seven people that were injured. And so that's quite... I mean, that's a pretty high body count, you know, 50% dead, the other ones in the hospital. And so, I mean, it was a pretty horrible reason. So after this had all occurred, what they tried to do is they tried to figure out, you know, what's his motivation here? You know, obviously he's dead, so we're not interviewing him. The other thing is he didn't leave any sort of notes, you know, like a suicide note or anything to that effect. So they had to kind of figure out what motivated this guy. And so some of the things that kind of came up was first, when he was younger, he was, you know, according to in his words from, you know, journals and things that they found, he was quite resentful about the fact that he was forced to go to church um, on a regular basis. Apparently, he would go three times a week and each time he just absolutely hated it and kind of had that anti-Christian attitude. They found other stuff like anti-religious materials and journal entries in his house afterwards. So there was kind of that. There was a clue that he had a serious problem with the church, you know, from something maybe in, you know, in his past. Other than that, he wasn't connected to that church at all. He didn't know anyone at Wedgwood Baptist Church. He never attended there. None of that. It was just, it seemed almost completely random. The next thing was, is 
there was some signs of drug use, possible drug use. Now, at the time of the autopsy, there was no drugs in his system, but he had actually spent some time in the Navy and was actually kicked out of the Navy for using marijuana. And so there's a little bit of a hint there that he had used, you know, so long-term use of marijuana can actually cause serious problems. And there's been a number of those studies, and they, and they always talk about um, extensive, intense use of marijuana. So in a sense, there's a chance at least that he kind of baked his brain. And uh, people that do that, now like I said, this is extensive use of marijuana, so long-term and the amount can actually create mental disorders that include paranoia. And so that could be a factor that played into it, this old drug use type stuff. The next thing was mental illness. And there was a lot of signs to show that mental illness was probably the primary factor here. So, you know, you had mental illness plus the additional damage of extensive, intense marijuana use. You know, you can see what we're starting to, what he did to his brain or what was going on in his brain. When they went into his house, it was completely a mess, to say the least. It was just destroyed. And so we, there was things like just complete filth, garbage, you know, biohazard type stuff. But there was also signs of like he would go into a rage occasionally and just destroy things. So there was like family photos that had been ripped up and thrown around, holes punched in the wall. He poured cement into the toilet, you know, so something clearly is not right here. His neighbors, you know, described him as really bizarre, bizarre. And um, they said it actually, you know, people that had been around him for a long time said it actually got a lot worse when his mother died almost 10 years earlier. And so he just kind of completely went off the rails. He was still living in that home with his father who was actually financially supporting him and um, and there was evidence and some uh, reports, at least the neighbors said, that he would verbally and physically abuse his father. The sad part is, is this, is nobody ever called the police on him for these things. And so it was all this, all these unreported abuse, elder abuse, quite frankly, against his father. So also another thing is this, is just prior to the shooting, his father died like three months ahead of time. So he basically, so, so far we have an anti-religious idea, you know, resentment from being forced to go to church. We have extensive, intense marijuana use, plus the mental illness. He's also displaying violence, known violence against his father, you know. So we're starting to see how all that profile is kind of coming together. Um, even though it doesn't necessarily say it directly in the research, we're probably talking about somebody who's also a loner, right? I mean, how many friends do you have when your mental illness has you pouring concrete into your toilet, right? His neighbors called him bizarre, crazy, wild, weird, all that kind of stuff. And so we have some other issues. We also have other signs of mental illness. He couldn't really hold down a job but he would make really bizarre claims about his fellow employees that they were somehow oppressing him and all kinds of stuff. He made um, reports to the local news station 
where he said that the police wanted to charge him with uh, being a serial killer and that he was being subjected to psychological warfare. So you really start, you know, you can kind of see this is really what's going on in this guy's head, which is not normal at all. The final thing that kind of adds into all this is they were able to find out that he had some connections to some extreme hate groups. And these hate groups were typically anti-Semitic, so anti-Jewish, and they were also anti-Christian. And they think one of the reasons he went to the Baptist church is because the Southern Baptist church had more recently come out as supporting and loving the Jewish people. And it was about converting them and bringing them to Christ. But it was it was a commitment to be, I guess, like, like I said, supportive of the Jewish community. And so here you go with this hate groups that were anti-Semitic, his hate group um, connection to the Klan, you know, anti-Christian, and those things coming together and really making Southern Baptist churches, in this case, Westwood Baptist Church, the target to be hit. So after all the shooting, or I should say during the shooting, I'm kind of kind of go back here a little bit and talk about response, you know, the short-term response, what happened there, and then what happened later. Is the first thing that happened is this: is during the attack, most people's reaction were were thinking that this was some sort of skit. And they think that's one of the reasons he actually felt like he had to pause and, and say a couple of times, this is real. Because people are looking at him as if it's a play or something and don't understand that actual people are being killed. And then once they did figure it out, people are running and diving for cover and, and trying to get out of the area. But he was still, think about this, they, this happened for 10 minutes so how many people weren't running for cover, not looking for their advantage to get away? You know, in a calm situation, you can probably evacuate your church for a fire drill in, you know, five to six minutes. This went on for 10 minutes. Um, it was the neighbors that ultimately called 911. So there was not even a plan or it did not occur to anybody in the situation to even call 911. And so when the police finally gets there, he's dead. Um, and so, you know, it's he's neutralized. They discover the pipe bomb, you know, that a pipe bomb had been used. So they evacuate the entire church and they have to do a search. Meanwhile, people are still on the floor, dead and or possibly dying. Now, there's no research that proves that people were still alive when the police got there. Um, but could have immediate action possibly helped? Maybe. Who knows? We'll never know that. And I don't want to put any, you know, whatever on the police. You know, they probably knew that they were dead or believed they were dead with a pretty good amount of authority there. But anyway, um, so they cleared the whole thing. Um, now, soon after, church members and volunteers actually were the ones that ended up coming back the next day to clean the place up. And we've talked about this in the past. Part of our active shooter or violent intruder training has to include a plan to get people in there to make repairs and to clean the place. And you know who it shouldn't be? The victims that were there. So, we, you know, sometimes you need to bring professionals in, especially crime scene professionals that come in and clean up that kind of mess. But 
um, they had to come in. It was their own volunteers to come in and clean the place up. They did have a memorial service for all the victims, but they had no plan for counseling and therapy for the survivors. That was completely unavailable in 1999. That's not entirely shocking that there wasn't that kind of plan put together. There's a report that at least one student went to school the next day. So they see all this stuff and it doesn't really even occur to anybody of what to do that aftercare from such a traumatic event. Um, but in the end, you know, the congregation did pull together. They stayed strong um, and they, you know, stumbled through the response. So long term, um, you know, the, in the end, the church was completely unprepared and they identified that. And so for about five, and just for clarity, this was just five months after the Columbine High School shooting. Um, and so they're completely unprepared despite that warning, you know, probably in their mind making, well, that's just something that happened at the school. It would never happen to us. Um, there is no expectation of any kind of shooting at a church really that way. While there has been violence in church prior to that, it was either low profile, one-off type stuff, or, you know, just it was not, it was pretty rare. Um, what they did do, though, in the long term is they had a veteran from the police department, and they put together a real plan to start preparing themselves for these types of in incidents with, of course, the goal of primarily to save lives. So there's a lot of lessons learned in this, and I'm sure you can think of a lot. One of the things that I just think about is this, is if you're listening to this podcast or watching me on YouTube, you're probably already 100% convinced of just how important it is to have some sort of safety ministry. I mean, even if it's just a bunch of people with cell phones that are just paying attention, you're already a little bit better off. You know, I think about when the bad guy came into the church, if there would have been a greeter there or a safety team member there that had been trained in situational awareness, they probably would have seen you know, his demeanor, right? The anger on his face, the, you know, the tenseness of his body, other indications that something was completely wrong. You know, clearly smoking a cigarette is, you know, is something that you don't often see inside a church. You know, that's a rare thing. The other thing is this, is verbal de-escalation. So, you know, it's easy, once again, it's easy to, hindsight is twenty twenty. But you see an angry person that clearly doesn't belong there and they have a cigarette in their mouth. Do you address the anger, their demeanor, or do you address the cigarette? I would say you address the larger of the two problems. As far as I'm concerned, an angry person can smoke a cigarette in the lobby all day long as long as I'm able to address that anger and try to use verbal de-escalation techniques to keep them calm, you know, calm and talking to me. Now, there's no proof that this would have worked. I'm just throwing it out there as something. You see an angry person, they're smoking a cigarette in the lobby. Do you go up and say, hey, put out the cigarette? Or do you say, hey, I can see that you're angry, that you're upset. Is there any way I can help you? Is there any, you know, anything I can do for you? And that might have, that might have delayed him. That might have stopped him. That might have maybe change nothing at all. 
but something for us to think about. We have to have a team that's trained to spot these little warning signs. The other thing is this. You know, certainly when the person comes in, we talk about our different levels of awareness, right? So level white, you're completely turned off. This is you sitting in your recliner at home watching TV. That's good. That's fine. As long as you're at home. As soon as you walk out and you start working, you know, as part of the safety team at the church or really just out in public anywhere, you need to be an elevated level to yellow, right? So this is your calm awareness. This is where you're not worried about nothing, but you're just kind of paying attention and, you know, you're looking for anything that might occur. Then once you start to identify that something might be up, like an angry guy with a cigarette, now you're at that level orange, right? So at the level orange, for us in a safety team, this is if nothing else is the time we're getting on the radio, letting our partners know that we are going to need backup in the lobby. You know, there's something suspicious going on here. You know, start heading this way. You know, so we would use that as a suspicious person. We might even use, we use code orange as a potentially violent person. Um, and so we would, I would have been on the radio, hey, code orange, lobby, 911, possibly, possibly. It would at least be code orange in the lobby. And then my team members know to start heading that way because something could be occurring. And then, of course, at that time he shot me, you know, if I'm the first guy talking to him, then at least you're coming to back me up. You know, my team's coming to back me up. And he could have maybe been neutralized at that point. So something else to think about, that situational awareness training that your team gets, maybe your door greeters get that, maybe your ushers get that, to prepare them to look for these kind of things and then what to do when they do see those things. I mean, it could have been, hey, this is way above my thing, we need to go into a lockdown, right? Or if somebody in the in that lobby or in that area heard the gunfire, grab on the radio, lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. And whatever your plan is, you're applying that, right? So in the case of run, hide, fight, this is clearly a situation where no one was prepared for run, hide, fight. Now, this is probably before run, hide, fight. So you had Columbine that kind of birthed that just five months earlier. And so, but still, for us, this means run, hide, fight. And we have to train that to our people, our congregation. Now, the good news is this, is since about... 2000, maybe a little bit, you know, somewhere around that time frame. Um, our kids have been been trained in this. They've been trained in lockdowns in schools for now 20 years. Okay, so anyone under 20 years old, very, very likely, has been at least trained in going into some sort of lockdown. And run, hide, fight, which is kind of something that's come, you know, since then, that's being taught too. Usually the people with the hang-ups for the whole run, hide, fight or any sort of lockdown training is the older people because we never had to think about those things and we're so horrified by the very idea and, and we should be that we just feel like we're, we're going to scare our kids or we're going to scare people out of the church and it's not that at all. They get that. Moms and dads with kids in school right now know their kids are being taught how to go into a lockdown. Know that stuff. So us older people, we just have to get over that and just talk about the importance of it. All right. So it really comes down to the whole training into spotting suspicious behaviors, having a team 
who's trained in spotting suspicious behaviors and then have some sort of response plan to that. Um, now, in the article, Wesley has some things in there about, you know, just, just some basics of things you should look at, you know, like things like, you know, loose, excessively loose clothing or, you know, heavy clothing when it's hot out. Um, you know, do they keep their hands in their pocket? Are they printing in anywhere where anywhere where you could see like the shape of a gun? You know, cup, are they cupping their hands like they're holding something? A lot of people that carry concealed even especially new concealed carry people they do a lot of gun checks to make sure their shirt or whatever is pulled over their weapon <coughs> and it's kind of funny go to church stand in the back row and just watch people for gun checks and you'll you'll know very quickly um, or at least you'll know some of the people that are carrying concealed um, bulges in clothing, you know, bags, cases, all those kind of things that people might store weapons and, and supplies and extra ammo and all that good stuff. So that's kind of my takeaway of lessons learned. Um, I would really encourage you, you know, to maybe share this video or this podcast with people your team and get together and think about it. You know, maybe go to the website and uh, pull up the article, read it together and have a discussion in your team. I'm sure that some of you are going to come away with um, different lessons learned, maybe even better lessons learned. But this is what it's all about. Let's get into these materials. Let's review them and let's figure out if we're prepared and what we would do from what can we do to stop it from occurring? What would we do it when it did occur? And then what would our recovery plan be? Do we have a plan to get people care and help afterwards? And my guess is a lot of churches out there, probably the vast majority, have none of that put together. And so this is the start to get that conversation going. So before I let you go, I do want you to know we do have an active shooter response course. And it's the whole intent of it is for basically the team, primarily, I always focus on the safety team practitioners, if you will. Um, but it's, you know, it's violent intruder response to help you develop different strategies and to help you mitigate casualties. And the sections that we cover in there is, you know, why do churches need it? You know, civilian response plan, you know, was the congregation or most people going to do? Um, active shooter preparedness, what we can do on the front end, some preventive stuff. And then finally, what the safety team's response plan can be. And so I really encourage you to check that out. If you haven't been through that training before, I, I think you're missing out on something that's going to be very helpful to you. Um, so thank you so much for joining us this week. And hey, let's be careful out there. This program is made for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice.